So I hope that gets you excited. It did me. I wanted to kind of jump up and start singing with them because I'm one of them. But um, thank you, man. I appreciate that very much. That, is, uh, that song is a, obviously a strong reminder of who we are speaking of today. Well, my desire is that this message, this music, you've heard already, a lot of it, the scripture reading that was read earlier, the coming to the table later, all point to the one and only Savior who is worthy of our worship. That is who Jesus is. I had Isaiah read from the book of Revelation to remind us that John was given a message from God to be a testimony to us so that what we saw or what he saw would be what we heard, what was heard by us to ultimately keep or believe that God has a master plan that we as his church are a part of. It set the stage for the message of the great book of Revelation by declaring who Jesus is. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. Well, it's been a long time since I've stood here preaching. I'm humbled, privileged to have led this body in music for the last ten and a half years. It's been ten and a half years, can you believe that? Yes. Ten years ago, today. Ten years ago, today, my life was radically changed by a heart issue, and I was reminded that God is the one true healer, sustainer, and giver of life. It's been a blessing to serve the Lord here. You have been a blessing to me, my family, and countless others who have come to First Street for fellowship, study of the Word of God, and the breaking of bread, which we will do in just a few minutes. It's what we all seek to do, serve together, grow together, go together to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel with us for those who are seeking and in need of a Savior, and they are many. It's the assignment Jesus gave us before returning to heaven. So we're taking a pause from the book of Romans to consider a couple of questions. First one I'd like to consider is this. Who do you say Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Each of us in this room will have an answer, whether we are a Christian or not a Christian. We will all, in some way, be called upon to answer this question. You answer it, and the answer that you give will have an impact on your life today and for all eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? I know many of you are solid in this. What I mean by that is that you have an accurate and eternal view of Christ. You've confessed you are a sinner, that Christ died for your sins, and rose again. And through his resurrection has given you eternal life because you believe he is the Son of God. There is no doubt. Praise God. Amen? Amen. Praise God. And many of, you, many of you have also taken the step of being baptized. I appreciated the... The announcement earlier that Chris gave is a baptism in a couple of weeks, demonstrating to the world that your unwavering desire to be identified with Christ as a devoted follower. And if you'd like to know more about it, I'm just going to reinforce that announcement. Don't hesitate to talk to one of the elders. 
before you even leave today. So don't delay. The Lord has been prompting you recently and after today to follow him in baptism. Take that step. It's an amazing demonstration and celebration of life devoted to Christ. Today I'd like to look at a few events in Mark's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Mark, just have it open there. We're going to kind of fly through it a little bit. And I pray we'll help you answer this question, a question that I asked a little while ago. Who do you say Jesus is? So let's pray. Lord, now would you guide our steps through this book we call the Gospel According to Mark. This is your gospel. This is your letter to us. Help us hear and see, Lord, what we need to hear and see about you. Help our unbelief. Guide my words. Give me strength in my voice, understanding in my thoughts. May I rightly divide your word for the truth to be understood for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Well, it's interesting as you read them how each of the four Gospels complement each other by telling of the works and life of Jesus in different ways. It's like observing an accident in an intersection with each of the writers on each of the four corners giving four different versions of what really happened. In the case of the Gospels, each one has a different view and a different way of describing the teachings of Jesus. Each have their own way of showing his majesty and his lordship. The beauty is that they all confirm the sacred acts of Christ and bring to our attention the lessons they learn. In Mark's gospel, it's clear. He wastes no time but getting right into Jesus' life in ministry in chapter 1 with his baptism, temptation, calling his first disciples, casting out unclean spirits, and many other healing and preaching occasions. The next six chapters are filled with more healings, parables, teaching his disciples many lessons that they struggled to learn, sending them out to cast out demons themselves and heal people, feeding thousands of people with little food and leftovers, and confronting the Pharisees on many issues. Just a note on Jesus' teaching style and what he said and how he said it. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God had come and that he was the ruler and the Lord of that kingdom. That, he, that challenged the standards of the kingdoms of the men and called people to live according to his ways. It was not the regular stuff that people were used to hearing from their Jewish leaders. This is what set his teachings apart from all others. It's the message within his teaching. The central theme was the kingdom of God. What Jesus came to do to bring a message of hope. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that happened right after Jesus' temptation. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was certain and clear in his Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law 
until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We could say his teaching was, as we used to say in the, in the 80s, out of this world. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 is one instance. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As well, several times throughout Jesus' ministry, he would point out how important it was to listen carefully. Listen carefully to what he was saying. It wasn't that he was speaking or talking above the audience. His teachings were different than the weighty messages of the Pharisees. Woe to the Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 23, for they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Jesus presented his teaching as a gentle shepherd leads his flock. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then two times in Mark chapter 4, he says this, and you've heard this before. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, as I look around the room, we all have ears here. Are you listening? He would tell his disciples, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he would emphatically say, pay attention to what you hear. It's a lesson now for us of paying attention to his words. So we come now to two miracles of Jesus, not recorded in Matthew, Luke, or John. They set the stage for what I'd like to talk about today. And you were probably saying, well, it's about time you get there. The first miracle is in Mark chapter 7. So if you want to turn there in your pew Bible, it's page 843. If you have your Bible, it's Mark chapter 7. Pew Bible is 843. So we read verses 31 through 37. This miracle. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, if you can picture this real quickly, I'm just going to do this. So, I'm going to do it this way so that you're with me. I'm with you. Mediterranean Sea is over here, okay? The coastline is here. Tyre is right here. See that little dot? And then Sidon's up here. And the Sea of Galilee is down here, okay? The Decapolis is kind of on the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee. So he went from Tyre through Sidon to the Decapolis. It's about 120 miles. They didn't have dune buggies. They might have had a camel, but most of the time they walked. And they, the people of that region, brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Afafa, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealous, the more zealously he, they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. 
He said, he has done all things well, even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, it's clear here that this man had been deaf and mute for some time, possibly even from childhood, since he had no understandable speech. The man's caring friends brought him to Jesus and asked him to lay hands on the man. Scripture doesn't tell us that they asked for him to be healed, but only in hopes that Jesus would bless him because he was deaf and mute. He did this and much more for this man. After taking him away from the crowds, assuming the disciples were with him, he paused to sigh. Maybe a gesture of our Lord's love and compassion for this man in his grief over the fall of man and the consequences of sin. Maybe the look to heaven was to signify that it was God alone who was able to do this for him. It was only by God's grace that healed him. Whatever the case, when the man's tongue was loosened, he began to speak plainly. Daniel Atkin here. One can only imagine the first words of clear speech uttered by this man. No doubt he was praising and glorifying God. Jesus charged him and his friends not to spread the news. Their response is understandable. Mark's conclusion has deep theological significance. He has done everything well, echoes creation and God's work in Genesis 1 and 2. He even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak talk, recalls Isaiah who wrote that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for waters were gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. James Edward also says, the allusion to Isaiah 35 is of supreme significance for Mark's presentation of Jesus. Not only because the restoration of speech signals the arrival of the day of the Lord, but also because the desert wastelands of Lebanon, Isaiah 35 verse 2, will receive the joy of God. The regions of Tyre and Sidon are precisely the Lebanon of Isaiah 35. Jesus' healing of this man becomes the first fruit of the fulfillment of Isaiah 35.10, that Gentile Lebanon will join the ransomed of the Lord and enter Zion with singing. Salvation thus comes to the Gentile world in Jesus. And then J.C. Ryle says, Here we are meant to see our Lord's power in the healing, in the heal, in the, to heal the spiritually deaf. Excuse me. He can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear. He can make him delight in listening to the very gospel which he once ridiculed and despised. Here we also are meant to see our Lord's power to heal the spiritually dumb. He can teach the hardest of transgressors to call upon God. He can put a new song in the, in the mouth of those who talk was, whose talk was once of this world. He can make the vilest man speak of spiritual things and testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When Jesus pours forth his spirit, Nothing is impossible. We must never despair of others. We must never regard our own hearts as too bad to be changed. He has healed the deaf and dumb, still lives. So I'd have to say at this point, many times there's a song that we think of that we interject and we include in our services that really speak well to what we're, the point we're trying to make. And that song is... Um, a hymn, oh, four thousand tongues to sing. So I want us to sing this song. So if you want to turn to hymn number 90, and take some time here, turn to hymn number 90. This kind of puts in perspective 
It captures the heart of the text. This is an appropriate place to sing this great hymn written by Charles Wesley. In number 90, we're going to sing verses 1, 4, and 5, I believe it is, in your book. No piano, no accompaniment. We're just going to sing a cappella. So, I'll give you a pitch. Oh, for, singing together, here we go. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold your Savior come, and ye lame for joy. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. So music has a way of, as you can tell, reinforcing the word of God and what's being said. It's not where we get our doctrine. We don't ever get doctrine from our hymns. Hymns reflect greatly what is being said in the word of God. It's an appropriate way to highlight what God tells us in his word, as long as it doesn't distract from the message. If a hymn or a psalm is not a part of your quiet moments with God, I strongly encourage you to invest in a hymnal. You're welcome to take one from the rack there if you'd like. We'll replace it. Or make a reading of the psalm a day part of your daily quiet time. Jesus cannot be hidden. They saw him as one who does all things well. But there's still this question to be answered. Remember that? I asked a question at the beginning. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, this is the glorious message we hear and we proclaim. We strive to make it clear. We use many times here Paul's message and mission in Colossians as a guidepost for our work in the world. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. You know this well. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, which, that he powerfully works within me. This is us. This is you. His energy is working powerfully in you as you go out into the world, as you have gospel conversations with other people, as you present Christ's goodness and life and gospel confidently to the world. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, the disciples traveled with Jesus most everywhere he went. They knew and saw him like everyone else, though, as a teacher, a miracle worker, a provider, a leader. They performed miracles as he sent them out. But they were, as we will see in the next miracle, still spiritually blind to who Jesus really was. They had the beauty of being privy to deeper meaning explanations that Jesus gave in his teaching. So let's go turn the page just over to Mark chapter 8. Maybe you don't have to turn the page. It's just right there. We're going to look at a second miracle. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and 25. This is what we want to look at here next. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Huh? And Jesus laid his hands on the, his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus then sent him to his own home and directed him to go, not go into the city. Well, this is interesting. Why did Jesus do this in two stages? Was his power running out? No. I believe Mark is strategic to place this miracle here to teach us a significant lesson. A lesson that depicts the gradual learning and understanding of the disciples and sometimes what we must experience when responding to, life, when responding to life's changing circumstances. Daniel Atkins says, Jesus could have healed this man instantly. That he doesn't. The disciples are slowly coming to see and understand that Jesus is the Messiah. However, even after Peter's great confession in 829, they still have only partial sight and understanding. He is not the kind of Messiah they expected. Only after the cross and the resurrection do they finally get it. They are just like this blind man who received his sight gradually. Sinclair Ferguson says, What is the significance of this? Was it that this man was particularly difficult case for Jesus? Hardly. Was this miracle then, like others, a sign? Yes. But to whom? To the man? No. To the disciples. And this is confirmed by the fact that Jesus had already asked them about their vision of him in verse 18. He was now leading them by the hand to the point at which their sight would become much clearer. And Peter would confess, you are the Christ, in verse 29. Their spiritual understanding did not come instantaneously, but gradually. They too needed the second touch from the hands of their maker. And then Daniel Aiken again. This miracle was for the man's physical sight as well as for the disciples' spiritual sight. This is true for us as we seek to understand God's word for our lives. Sorry, I have to interject another song here. And I want you to just recite it with me. You know this first this first verse of this song. It's the words of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. So let's say it together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So when you sing that, you sing that with the music, or maybe you don't sing it. That's okay. You're pondering what the message of that hymn is. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind. Now I see. Why? Because of God's amazing grace that he shed to me. The very next section carries the question we are pondering today. Hey, we're getting there. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Their answers were in part describing an inaccurate or incomplete picture, really, of who Jesus is. In their partial sight, they saw Jesus like this blind man after partially receiving sight, seeing men like trees walking, really an incomplete picture. Daniel Ekin, Jesus asked a straightforward question, a question the 12 have pondered since he calmed the sea, 441. They said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples give the popular opinions, making the rounds. Some agreed with Herod Antipas that 
He was some kind of reincarnation of John the Baptist. Others judged that he was Elijah, the prophetic forerunner before the day of the Lord. Others uh, still made a simpler claim. He is one of the prophets, perhaps the one promised by Moses. These were favorable assessments, to be sure. Still quoting Daniel Ekin. Each is positive and affirming, much like those who today would applaud him as a great moral teacher, the, the example all should emulate. They honor him but misrepresent him. They applaud him while denying who he really is. This inescapable question demands an accurate and acceptable answer. Who do people say that I am? Have you heard some of these descriptions of Jesus today? Maybe in a classroom or a discussion. Maybe in a store or in your neighborhood. Maybe in your family or talking with a friend. The world will have their answers. But whatever the case, there is only one correct answer, one clear answer. Alistair Begg says this. Now this is actually the turning point, the watershed in all the gospel records. Here in Mark 8, everything shifts after this. All that Jesus does after this is a direct relationship to the answer that is now about to be given. If you know your Bible at all, you won't be surprised that the one who steps up and says, I know the answer to that, is none other than Peter. Peter speaks for more than himself when he says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's gospel, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To say you are the Christ is to use a Greek word, Messiah, meaning anointed one. The Old Testament picture was of the Lord's anointed. God anointed kings and judges and prophets, and they were representatives, spokesmen, but they were always pointing forward to the one who would come, and that is Jesus, the Messiah who would come to be our Savior. The word actually means a deliverer. Matthew's account's almost verbatim here with, with more. Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the districts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, or that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me say that again. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. At that time, I believe the eyes of the disciples were open to who Jesus truly was. Maybe not the conquering king they were thinking would come, but a compassionate Savior who served people and gave his life for many, as Mark records later in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. David Platt we can only see Jesus for who he is if God supernaturally opens our eyes. The story of every single Christian, every single follower of Christ is a story of God doing in your life what you could not do on your own. On your own, you were spiritually dead. This was revealed to Peter, by, this was revealed to Peter not by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. Jesus made it clear that Peter saw what he needed to see at that moment. 
David Platt again. We must never forget that the grace of God is the only way that anyone can behold the beauty of Christ. Jesus says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In and of ourselves, we are blind, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. We love the darkness, John 3.19. But God in his mercy has opened our eyes to see Jesus, to know who he is, to believe in him, and to confess him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the testimony of every Christian. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We don't see that yet, but it's coming in the coming age later. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. Peter's confession was paramount. For Peter to make this confession of who Jesus was is the foundation on which Jesus will build his church. Let me say that again. For Peter to make this confession of who Jesus was is the foundation on which Jesus will build his church and he's still building. David Platt and John MacArthur and Martin Luther, all three together here. <laughs> Peter is the first apostle who makes the declaration of Christ's identity, and he is the apostle upon whom much of the church's foundation would be built, beginning in Acts 2. As a result of Peter's initial proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, around 3,000 people were saved, Acts 2.41. Right after this, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the word, and thousands more came to Christ in the days ahead. Can you imagine what a revival like that would start? We don't quite have room for 3,000 people. But we have room for more. We can put more in. We'll make more. We'll make more room. We'll, whatever we need to do. Jesus was building his church and Peter continued to play a central role in his mission throughout the first 12 chapters of Acts. But Peter was not alone. For Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of all the apostles, Christ being the cornerstone. By the way, Peter was not perfect. See how he is called Satan just a few verses later. And beyond Peter, Martin Luther declared, all who agree with the confession of Peter in Matthew 16.16 16 are Peter's themselves. Setting a sure foundation. This is not to take away from the uniqueness of Peter, but it's to remind us that as we proclaim the gospel, don't miss this, we too are building upon the foundation confession made by Peter approximately 2,000 years ago. On this rock, I will build my church. I love the words, I love the words of J.C. Ryle when he says, nothing can altogether overthrow and restore the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never together extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. 
The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this, in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is the bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. End of quote from J.C. Ryle. We are that church. David Platt says these three things. This text is about a sovereign savior. I will build my church. Jesus alone, alone is preeminent in the text. This text is non-negotiable, is a non-negotiable declaration. Wherever Christ is proclaimed, the church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thirdly, this text is about an invincible mission. The church proclaims the revelation of God, saving sinners through Christ. Only with his message do we have Christ's authority to call people to be saved. We are a community that proclaims Jesus confidently. So at the beginning I said we have a couple of questions. So we finally come to the second one, and it's time. What would you do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? If you know Jesus today, if you have confessed with your heart that he is Lord of your life, you have the authority of Jesus to spread the gospel confidently. I'm thinking there are many gospel conversations to be had. I know I do. If you don't know Jesus, the time is now to put your trust in him. And make this confession. My prayer is that God will open your eyes before the day is done. Settle with God what you need to settle. Call on him. Others who have been around church for most of their lives, yet have not seen what Jesus, who Jesus really is. They know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Our life for eternity depends on it. Romans 10, 8 through 10. I had to get to Romans, Sorry says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is, sin and is saved. So it, come down, it comes down really to hearing, as we saw in that first miracle, to seeing, as we see in that second one, and believing, hearing as a man who was given his hearing speech, seeing as a man whose, whose sight was restored, and believing Jesus is the Son of God. We need to proclaim Jesus confidently in the world. And then what Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, you indeed are Lord of all. You are the first and the last. You are the Alpha and Omega. If we were to spend time talking about who you are in each of our lives, walking around this room, we might come up with some different answers. Answers that are in you and for you and of you and from you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to realize the importance of sharing your word, going forth confidently in this world. And begin that with me. Begin that with each one in this room. And those that are in this room that need you, Lord, in their lives, touch them. Speak to them through your Holy Spirit. As you are seeking them out, you reveal to them, would you reveal to them your goodness, your power, your spirit, 
your love, your grace, your kindness to them, Lord. Not through us, but through you, through your spirit. As we enter this time, come to the table, Lord, may we be reminded of who you are, who we are. In the name of Jesus, I pray.